Welcome to Alchemy Uncensored, a podcast presented by Alchemy Search, a team of professional financial and tax recruiters. Our podcast is dedicated to providing valuable insights into the financial and tax sector of the UE by discussing the challenges and opportunities faced by employers and job seekers. Alchemy Uncensored is the perfect podcast for those looking to gain a competitive edge in the finance, accounting and tax industry of the UE. Stay informed on the latest job market trends, developments and conversations to stay ahead of the game. Tune into our podcast to be part of this insightful conversation. I'm Wiam Kamel, Principal at Alchemy Search, the only finance and tax recruiter in the UAE. And I'm joined today by Steve Drake, co-founder and partner at Middle East Advisory Partners, an organization established in the UAE supporting UAE regional and international clients deal with the challenges faced in scaling businesses. Primarily focused on owner-manager and SMEs, Steve and the team compromise of senior experienced professionals, either with a big four background or from a senior cross-functional corporate roles. With experience across areas such as finance, operations, human capital, IT, sales and supply chain, Steve helps businesses to overcome obstacles during their growth phase and has helped multiple companies in multiple industries break through. Alchemy and MEAP are partners, and we have worked on some clients together to advise on recruitment gaps or hiring needs across the finance function. Today, we will be discussing what Steve has seen from his rich experience happen again and again in small businesses. So if you're a small business, you don't want to miss hearing it from the expert himself. So Steve, without further ado, welcome to the Alchemy Uncensored podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, and uh, I, I appreciate being invited. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, it's a really good setting that we have, and I think quite an interesting um, subject to talk about, just because there's a lot of SMEs, a lot of small owner-managed businesses in the UAE that I think would benefit a lot from someone like yourself that can give a lot of that info. Um, the way I like to start these things all the time, I don't want to jump straight in. I want to give a little bit of taste over your background, you know, what you've been doing on your side, um, just to give it a little bit of a human touch so people know what's going on in the in the back end, right? Um, so you were a partner at Big Four. That's correct. Which Big Four? Oh, you want me to name them? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a secret. It was PwC. Yeah. Okay. And you've ever since moved on and... Was there a reason you decided to leave the big four? I mean, being a partner at a big four is quite an accomplishment. A lot of people thrive and want to accomplish that in their career. Um, what was the reason you did that? Yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I spent 26 years in all with the firm, uh, 13 as a partner here in the Middle East. Um, and I enjoyed pretty much everything I did with the firm. I walked, worked all over the world, um, Asia, the Americas, across Europe, and they were all great experiences. Um, and then came to the Middle East in 2007 with a challenge of establishing a new business unit within the firm and, and really enjoyed that, loved it. Um, but I think throughout my career, whether it was um, a fantasy or reality, I always had the urge to do my own thing uh, and be a bit of an entrepreneur, which is difficult to do when you're ultimately in a corporate. So I think the time was just right, stage of career, stage of life, Kids had grown up and flown the nest. It was time to do what I wanted to do. That was um, create our own advisory business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And from a service line perspective as well, you've done a couple of those. It's not like you stuck to one for yeah. 26 years. So can you just give a little bit insight on that? Like sure. Like service lines? Well, I started as an auditor. Yeah. Back, as they all do. Back in the 90s. Okay. Um, so I'm a UK chartered accountant by qualification. 
uh, and spent about five years in the audit practice. Um, and then after that, I was still in the UK at the time. I joined our capital markets firm, which is primarily a listings business. And that's when I got international exposure. So I worked on quite a, quite a lot of um, quite significant overseas projects that were listing projects, uh, working with the client to help them realize that listing ambition and to help them through the, the issues they face in doing that. Um, and did that for probably about 13 or 14 years. Um, and then latterly, I looked after the Middle East firm's risk business, risk advisory. Um, so that's areas like corporate governance and controls and processes. Um, and it was also the firm's internal audit function. So in terms of things that, that businesses need and professional services provide, I've had quite a lot of exposure across different lines of service. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a big differences as well. I mean, like capital markets, risk yeah. is totally, also it's like totally different service lines. Um, but in a way, as, as well connected because you need all that governance from that side to, to do to do a listing to begin Correct. with. So, Correct, they're interrelated. Um, yeah. And it's not really easy to move from one service line to another in a big four, is it? Or um, it, it can be, yeah, it can be. Um, okay. There's quite a bit of flexibility to support um, people's progression desires and uh, next stage of development of their life. And that includes moving around the, the network as well. Uh, generally, Big Four quite good at enabling staff to go and experience different territories, whether that's short-term secondments or, or longer-term. So, yeah, no mobility and, and cross-functional working is, uh, is sponsored. Yeah. Many of our audience and people that will be listening this to this um, will probably be in your early footsteps, um, mm -hmm. maybe in a Big Four, maybe deciding to move from a Big Four. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are the pros and cons now that you've seen kind of how to deal with a smaller business and what it's like to be in a big four, you know, if you could just give like a quick, maybe one or two things that are good and one or two things that are bad. Uh, well, like they're quite different experiences, but they require similar skill sets. So, um, I would always encourage from what I tried to do within big four was encourage the ability to do different things. So being able to move out of an audit business, being able, I don't mean that specifically to move out of an audit business, but to move on to do different things. Um, and also the ability to, to work globally, work on different projects. So I think the, the larger firms are very good at enabling that because of the size, the network they have. Um, and as I said, the willingness to support mobility. So that's, that, that's great. And I've, and I've always thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, but as I've said, kind of doing your own thing and doing something that's smaller and more bespoke, uh, I think there are positives to that. Um, I think there are positives from a client perspective to that as well. Um, you know, whether it's it's big for a large corporation, they tend to be to be big beasts. Whereas when you're a smaller beast, you can you can be more flexible. You can be more bespoke in terms of what you do with clients, and you can also be a little bit broader in terms of what you do as well. So um, there's there's. I, I'm not really giving you any cons. I'm giving you pros to each because I genuinely think there are pros to each. Um, and therefore it's down to the, you know, what individuals specifically want themselves. Yeah, like I feel that smaller advisory business, it's, it's tough to run a small advisory business. It's not easy because, you know, there's always going to be, you know, the bigger guys, the larger beasts that, you know, are out there and they will always be out there. Um, but have you found that in the UAE 
companies are more susceptible to using smaller advisory businesses or do you find that they always go to the big four or one of the bigger brands or what's your thoughts on that? I think it's different markets, different segments. So we aren't a business that uh, are looking to compete in the big four space. There's a big four market and that's well tried and tested because they're by definition big. Um, but there's a there's a sector of the economy, whether it's here or, or, or globally, uh, that are our SMEs, their owner managers, um, and they don't necessarily have the resources to be able to to deal with the larger firms, and therefore smaller, more boutique firms, but who have the skills and the capability to deliver. Um, I think there's a very clear market for that, and that's really the reason we established the business to, if you like, support the small guys um, and to be able to provide that bespoke service that a boutique organisation can. Yeah. By definition, more nimble, generally more nimble, more flexible in approach. Um, and that's the market that we seek to serve. So we're not looking to compete with the larger firms. We're looking to fill ultimately a gap in the market. Yeah. And your clients, they are not only UAE based, they're all over from mm -hmm. what I understand, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um are you also in touch with maybe companies that want to come and set up in the UAE and things like that as well? And do you help them through that? We do. Um, we're not specifically company formation. There are existing businesses that do that. Um, and we have provide, um, preferred partners who would support with that. But absolutely, supporting inbound um, overseas entities who want to set up in the UAE, in whatever format that is, that could be rollout of products, it could be acquisition of existing bus businesses, there's different ways to do that. It's always helpful for those entities to be able to rely upon and trust somebody locally who can help them navigate the way to do that, best way to do that. The UAE right now is attracting a lot yeah. right, uh, from a business perspective, which is an exciting time for advisors, for recruiters, um, to help them through through the journey. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one big thing for them is to, you know, learn the lessons that maybe others have made a mistake in or actually know how to go through the whole business environment here, because it is unique. It's mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, it's not uh, very similar to a lot of other places in the world. Um, and I think from, from that side and from your experience, um, you know, having dealt with so many different companies, whether that means they're in the UAE or regionally or internationally, um, what do you think are the three topics you feel are consistent challenges, um, for smaller businesses, regardless of industries? Um, I tend to define the response to that as what I call bandwidth. Yeah. So your your larger corporates have a number of different departments that cover different areas. And generally the expertise within those businesses is quite broad. But with your smaller businesses, they don't have the resources to be able to staff up in the same way. Um, and therefore having the, the bandwidth of thought and capability is a common challenge. That means that the, the owner um, or the CEO or whoever's ultimately tasked with growing the business um, generally has limited people that can support through mm. you know, strategic thinking or um, optimizing processes, making the business more efficient. Um, and that tends to be a challenge and that can manifest itself in, in many different ways. So we quite often um, have inquiries to support clients scale so they've got to a certain size and they're not quite sure what to do next. Yeah, not sure how to get to the next level. Um, and therefore, 
helping them, supporting them through that process and actually helping them achieve it. So we might come in as a like an interim sales director or a role such as that to help them achieve that. Um, that's one area. Um, then how I describe optimizing processes um, and optimizing operations. So quite often on the flip side of what I've just said, a lot of businesses do scale quickly, but sometimes um, in scaling as quick as they do, operations don't necessarily keep up with them um, and therefore they become inefficient to a certain degree. Um, and you can find that the owners, the founders of the business are spending more time on operational matters than they are on client or market um, related matters. So helping them sort out the operations and streamlining also tends to be um, quite common. And then finance. Finance is always an issue for any growing business. How do you finance that growth? And therefore helping them think through and achieving that uh, the financing ambition to, to support the ultimately the growth that they're seeing in the business so but all of that ultimately comes back to one thing and that's bandwidth of capability within the organization to one to be able to identify these types of issues and then two to be able to deal with them and lead change programs and therefore that's where we as an organization fit in uh, our team are all experienced people in their field they're all partner level uh, individuals and therefore they have the ability to spot these problems and then work with the, the owner manager or the CEO to deal with them um, and to move forward. Yeah. So bandwidth, so with people, operations, you know, are we talking about things like supply chain, logistics, just looking at processes and trying to let's say, cut costs from that perspective as well? Is that what we're... It could be that. It could be a whole host of different areas within the business, but ultimately operational efficiency. So um, kind of how do, you, how do you take time out of the owner's diary that is internally focused versus externally focused? How do you have an operational um, smooth process that enables that to happen? And that could be there aren't enough functions internally or there isn't enough capability within the functions internally or, yeah, there's no clearly defined processes that need to be adopted and followed to make that uh, um, the operation streamlined. So it, it can be a combination of things. Yeah, I'm quite interested as well in the financing side of things because right now we're seeing a move where there's a lot of private credit coming into the region. Um, what are your thoughts about that, um, you know, moving away a little bit from perhaps banks um, and the sort and um, moving more towards, you know, the private side of things. Um, how do you think that's going to change the market? Because that didn't really exist up until very recently, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, cr credit has always been a challenge for smaller businesses, particularly those that are uh, what we describe as asset light. So lending uh, lenders try, like to collateralize uh, their lending, uh, and that's easier when you've got an asset-heavy business than asset-light. Um, uh, and therefore, the, the ability to access debt capital has been a challenge, uh, which drives you down the equity route. So quite a lot of the work that we see is actually equity offerings as opposed to debt. So I think it's probably still early stage for that, but I would see it as a positive um, because it is a, it's, a, it's a quicker and a cheaper form of access to capital, assuming that you can um, cover your debt repayments. That's obviously quite important. Um, so, yeah, I would see it positively, but I, I still think equity finance is going to be the, the primary source of capital going forward. And do you find that a lot of smaller businesses here 
in the region after several several years of trading not being able to go to that next level is that number increasing as opposed to what it was before and hence why this private you know credit is there or financing is there or you know what's driving that yeah i i would say um generally particularly over the last few years the the buoyancy of this market pace has been very strong uh, and therefore a lot of businesses have grown quite significantly and the question is what's next yeah how do you, how do you finance that next stage of growth um or for the for the founders also do we take a view to exit at this point and pass it on to somebody else so there is a lot of um what you might describe as deals or m&a type activity whether that either is bringing in a strategic investor to help get to that next level where maybe the founders have 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 got as far as they can take it um or the founders saying we'll do something else now yeah we'll move on and we'll allow the the next phase to to happen within our business so a kind of a range of things but there is a buoyancy and therefore that drives quite a few transactions of that nature um and we do get quite a few inquiries whether that's uh looking to bring in a strategic investor to support the founders or whether that's the founders actually saying it's time to exit and move on yeah i mean um we've seen a number of a m&a transactions and ipo you know listings happening um mm-hmm. especially over the last couple of years a lot of them in abu dhabi um what are your thoughts about that do you think that that's going to continue or is it going to slow down a little bit or how has it been just generally this year as opposed to last year um it doesn't look like it's going to slow down uh, i would say particularly in a an abu dhabi context there is government support to continue to support ipos and to continue to support the exchange um I'd say by and large what we've seen they've re- they've been government related entities yeah so effectively government sponsored uh, IPOs um as opposed to the private sector so I would imagine that the government backed IPO programs will will continue and we'll see that for the next 2 or 3 years the question is whether there is um the same appetite for for the private sector for the private businesses or the smaller businesses and there've been some efforts to try and develop junior markets where that's an easier um process for the smaller businesses but that hasn't really taken hold so i think we'll continue to see a buoyant ipo market but it'll be quite concentrated into the the larger the government backed type entities as opposed to the sme sector but that's just my view it's not <laughs> let's see we'll check in in like 3 <laughs> to 6 months time what's going to happen because yeah. it's it is an unpredictable market i feel sometimes mm-hmm. um uh last year for us for example th- there was a lot that was happening and we were you know riding the wave saying it's going to continue it's going to continue but then you know when this year came it did slow down quite a bit you know a lot of the activities um but i feel like a lot of companies they want to reap the fruits, fruits of their labor um and then continue growth maybe over the next quarter or maybe over the next year mm-hmm. so let's see how things go i guess in 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 2024 um but regardless it's not stopping people coming here it's not stopping either companies or like i said all these financial services firms coming up or for people to set up their own businesses here the business community or the ecosystem is quite easy to go around i mean it's easy to set up a business just generally right um, yeah i mean there's been a huge influx over i, I guess post covid of uh, new businesses come to the market particularly from places like the UK and Europe where um the covid experience wasn't as good as as it was here and people have realized that in a in a mobile and a digital world they can be based here and still run a global business so yeah i think uh, certainly dubai has seen 
the output of that. And from your, you know, from your view then, smaller businesses and larger businesses, because I'm, I'm assuming you've worked with both different, mm-hmm. um, different areas. What do you think that smaller businesses lack or that they don't have? You know, is it the knowledge that they don't have that larger organizations have or what kind of resources are lacking there? I don't think there's one answer to that, but I think it's it goes back to the point I made earlier about bandwidth. Do they have sufficient resource capability at a senior level across all of their functions? And generally the answer to that is no. Um, and quite often you have quite a flat structure where um, maybe more junior staff will report directly to the owner as opposed to in a more conventional structure or a larger corporate you might have a chief financial officer or a chief operating officer or other C-suite executives that will kind of take that reporting burden off the CEO. That's less well-defined in the in the SME um, space. And therefore, quite often, everything sits on the shoulders of the CEO um, or the owner. And it's a question of, well, who, who's their sounding board? Who do they reach out to to be able to um, support their thinking around strategic decision-making? And that's that's where their key challenges tend to be. Who do I reach out to? Who's my sounding board? Am I doing the right things? Is there a different way to look at this? Um, And without the internal resource, senior internal resource to to brainstorm that, um, that's that's where a lot of the challenges lie. And therefore, having an external sounding board is, is quite important for them. So if you could think about, for example, some ongoing projects that you have right now mm-hmm. um, with some smaller businesses that you're working with, you know, what are, you ex- what are some topics that you're exactly advising them on? Um, some of the ongoing stuff that you have now, I don't know, it's at the top of your head. Um, they're, they're quite mixed, yeah. which is good um, because that suits the skills of the, of the partner group. Um, but if I think about some of the projects that have been longer term, um, the scaling and sales strategy piece um, is a good project for us. And that's one of our partners working directly with the CEO to um, essentially take a business that had grown quickly but plateaued to the next level. Recognition that there is a market there, but they're not quite taking the market in the way that they need to. So part of the process we went through was around defining what is that strategy, what is that market strategy and sales strategy that sits behind it, but also how do you then reshape the internal team to be able to take it. So part of it was externally focused, part of it was internally focused. Um, Another project we have is uh, operationally focused, and this is classic, we've grown really quickly. Um, the founders of the business are specialists in their field, but they don't necessarily understand operations. Um, and they're finding that a lot of their time has been dragged into dealing with internal matters. So we've been tasked with um, identifying what are the issues, how do they reduce their time, um, and then put in place mechanisms to, to make that happen. So it's a phased program whereby we identify the issue Um, come up with the solutions, and then on a part-time basis, one of our partners step in to actually um, implement that. And then in due course, find a successor uh, who can take it over, and then we step out. Um, We get quite a lot of um, M&A-type activity, so founders who've done really well, been here a long time, it's time to move on. So who, who who do we sell to? Yeah. What is the right exit strategy for us? And in those situations, we work with them through preparatory phase through to exit phase. So um, 
owners don't always necessarily appreciate that their business mightn't look as rosy to a third party as it does to them. Yeah. And therefore there could be some inhibitors within the business that either um, delay or derail a sales process um, or cause uh, issues with valuation. And where you've got expectations gap on valuation, you generally don't get a sale. So we'll work with them to make sure those things are not issues at the time that they then go to market. Owners are like parents, aren't they? It's like their child is their golden it's child. Their child. It's like there's nothing wrong with nothing, the business, no, right? Absolutely right. Um, <laughs> and it must be tough to tell them, like, listen, there is these things. Um, how do you approach that? Do you find that very difficult? You know, obviously it's not easy for an owner to say, well, I I'll give you free reign to, you know, kind of get into the business and fix what's wrong with it. Because let's face it, nobody wants to hear that something's wrong. And, and it's not necessarily about being wrong. Okay. It's just a case of um, if you did things differently, you might get a higher value. You could get a better exit ultimately from, from it. Um, we don't find that most clients are challenging in that regard. Um, you know, they've uh, they've got to a point where they, they want to maximize the exit, but they also get to a point where they want to make sure that their, their legacy is ongoing as well. And therefore, if it's in the best shape it can be, then that's good good for their legacy. Um, we don't tend to find that so much a challenge, although we can find challenges around valuation gaps and expectations. That's that's normal in any transaction. Because yeah. it's, it's here. Yeah. This is what I expect. I've worked my whole life to yes. get it to there. Um, and yeah, therefore, there's a little bit of um, sensitivity around how you have the discussion on it's perhaps not worth as much as you think. But at the end of the day, valuation is... Um, it's a technical exercise. There's parameters to follow and, and buyers follow it. So um, it kind of, yeah. it is what it is sometimes. You spoke a lot about, you know, a few times during this whole time about growing too quickly, growing too quickly. I think maybe a lot of businesses feel that growing too quickly is a positive thing, mm -hmm. as in, you know, we're doing great. Like, you know, we've opened five stores, we've got a warehouse, we've had opened a new factory or whatever it is. Um, is there such thing as, you know, it being negative and how do you go backwards? How do you retrace your steps to say, steps to say, okay, this is the moment where we grew too quickly. Is there a timeline? Is there somewhere you can pinpoint or does that not matter? And just, you know, let's just restructure or, you know, find a way to turn around the business. Um, I, I don't think growing quickly is a negative necessarily, as long as it's supported by um, having your infrastructure in place to, to make that happen, yeah? And I talked about operational efficiency previously or having the right people in the team, yeah? Uh, those types of things. So yes, grow quickly, but make sure that your infrastructure is right to support you with that growth. Otherwise, it can give you issues in the future. And those issues might be losses or lost contracts or you haven't taken care of a customer well enough or a whole host of different things because you haven't built the infrastructure to go with it. Um, and quite often we will be asked to support at the point in time where it has gone wrong and there have been issues. Yeah, so it's more of a reactive approach to that journey mm -hmm. as opposed to a proactive approach to that journey. And sometimes a conversation with owners about the proactive approach is difficult to have. And the reason it's difficult to have is because things are going well. Things are going well in, in, their, mar in their chosen markets with their chosen products and clients. Um, and the, sometimes only when it starts to go wrong or there's a downside do they realize that things need to be changed. Not everybody, but it, it can happen.
Yeah, like I know, you know, a few companies that, you know, I've been speaking to recently where sometimes you hear about the number of people that work at the organization um, or, you know, uh, kind of like their vision and them wanting to probably do too much, probably run before they can walk. Um, but we hear things like, you know, the finance team of such a small business has 10 people. It's like, do you actually need 10 people? But then you find out that a lot of the stuff is manual. Um, so what do you think about automation coming into this? Is this going to be a really big cost saving for companies? Should they, should they you know, consider it? Because on, the, on one side, yes, it can cut, cut costs for you. But I've also heard this many times that, you know, they've gone on spending too much money to implement a system. It doesn't really work. They haven't really seen the invest, like the, the return of investment on it. And, you know, all that money's gone. Um, so how, how do you see that? Well, we do work with a lot of businesses that are not as well automated as they need to be or digitized. Um, and you're right, you can quite often see situations where there are multiple systems in organizations um, that have functionality, but they're not always used in the way that they need to be, or they're not providing the information or the data that they should be, uh, or they don't speak to each other, and therefore they need to be integrated. So um, it's a difficult one to answer sometimes in terms of what do you do, but I think before you embark on any kind of automation or, or digitization program, you need to think about what is what is the end result? What do I actually want this to achieve? And do I understand what it is I need to achieve? Um, and quite often there can be lower cost solutions to the to the problem as well, as opposed to you know large ERP implementations or um, expensive solutions. So, not one answer. We do tend to see a lot of. Um, uh, or a lack of automation within within companies, but in order to rectify that, you need to be working with the right people, and you also need to understand what output you want from it. Otherwise, you can get into a situation where you have multiple bolt-on type um, systems and solutions that actually aren't necessarily the right answer, don't necessarily give you the right output, and don't speak to each other. So, therefore, that um, increases the level of manual activity that that exists in the business. Yeah, like for us, three years, well, two two years in, in Alchemy Search and one year before that, we've so far implemented three systems. Right. Well, two one once was manual. We just did everything manually. But obviously, as you scale the business, that's impossible to, yeah. you know, keep um, because then it's just going to be one massive file that everybody just puts things on. Um one of the other systems just didn't work for us. We couldn't figure it out, to be honest. It just didn't work for us. And now uh, we've moved on to another one. And to be honest, sometimes you're so far deep in it that you're just, no, I'm just going to use this. I'm just going to try to make this work for me. Um, and never really look at other options because, you know, once you choose one, it's hard to change people's habits mm -hmm. um, or make them do, you know, some compliance or stuff like that like this is how we do it right because it changes so much it's not an easy one with systems at all because if people are used to something you know how do you change that yeah and, and choosing the right person to help you with it's not straightforward either there's a lot of um vendors out there yeah yeah it loads. is a challenge for businesses yeah loads i don't have a magic wand for that but no 
<laughs> you'd have to choose one that's right. And would you say that for different types of businesses, then systems, you know, m there are some systems that would make more sense than others? Or, you know, for example, if it's a manufacturing business, would it be, you know, that's one specific software? Or is it more on the business need, nothing to do with industry? Or I think it's a bit of both. Yeah, it's a bit of both. But ultimately, it's a question of what, what do you want it to do for you? And what information do you want from it? Yeah. Because if you're not getting the data that you need to be able to help run your business, then yeah. it, it's not performing for you. So after you left the big four, you've obviously chosen to stay in the UAE mm -hmm. and in the Middle East. Um, why did you decide to stay here? Like, why not set up the business in, I don't know, the UK? Or why not set up the business in... Because uh, you're catering to clients all over the world, right? You could have been anywhere. Mm -hmm. Why the UAE? Um, well, one, I like it. It's home. Hmm. Uh, it's been home since 2007. So that's that's part of the decision making. Um, and it's, I think, so I can compare it directly to the UK because that's where I was from. Um, I think the ease of doing business is, is better in the UE than it is in, in the UK. Um, the, you know, the government initiatives and what the UE has achieved over the years and what it wants to continue to achieve just fosters that business environment. And I think, therefore, being able to, to deal with people, to network with people, to work with people is a, a lot easier here. And therefore, it's a great place to establish businesses. Um, and I, I think you see that. You see that with new entrants to the market, not, not just in our space, but generally in any space. Um, it's seen as a as a business friendly environment, and I just think it's been an easier process for us to establish something from scratch, a startup ultimately, um, to where we are now, and we're still very early stage in our journey. I don't think we would achieve that if we were somewhere else. Okay, so and if it wasn't the UAE, mm -hmm. hypothetically, where else in the Middle East would you think you would have set up the business? if we could just confine it to the Middle East, is there mm -hmm. somewhere that also has the ease of business or coming up to have the ease of business or what do you think? Without wanting to be too controversial, I'd say no, prob probably not. Um, uh, the ease of, of doing business here. But also you need to look at the market dynamics. So if we look at, um, at what we do, we're senior people providing support to owner managers and SMEs to their, to their C-suite. If you look at the dynamics of our other um, regional economies, particularly the larger ones, that's not really the market sector that's a, that's a focus right now. Um, if I take Saudi, for example, a lot of what's happening there is change at a governmental level um, and large-scale projects. We're not a business that has been established to focus on those. Uh, I think there'll come a time, maybe in, in a couple of years' time, where there is a market there for us. Yeah, So I, it's kind of Yes, it's the right business environment, but I think it's also the right macroeconomic environment for us to, to, to flourish. And I'm not convinced that's elsewhere in the region at the moment. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it will take some time. I don't want to put number of years on it because people always say yeah. Saudi is 10 years behind. I don't know whether that's true. I don't know. Maybe it's more. We, we, we don't know really that number, but um, we will see how that goes. Um, so when you came to the UAE... Um, did you think you were going to stay this long or how long did you think you were going to stay? I came with an open mind and two young children. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't define it in years. We defined it in experience. Um, and we enjoyed the experience. Um, and I remember the, uh, 
right at the beginning, our son at the time was 10. Yeah. Um, and he found it a little difficult to leave his, his friends at school. So it was a challenging op- uh, opening for us, but he quickly got used to the environment and, and loved it and enjoyed it. And I think from looking at the kids and how they are now and how internationally minded they are and the friend groups that they had, um, it's been perhaps more of a great experience for them and their development from a young age than it has ours. But we still enjoyed it. My wife loves it here. She, I don't think she would um, swap the sun for the freezing cold winters of the UK anymore. The so. rain and the clouds, <laughs> no. So we came with an open mind and no fixed agenda. Um, also at the time um, with PwC, it was very early stage in that firm's growth agenda. And obviously it's gone on to achieve fantastic things over the last 16 years. And it was a, you know, it was good and a, a privilege to be a part of that journey as well and, and help build that firm in the way that it's, um, it's grown. So it was a great place to raise kids because a lot of people... Mm-hmm. You know, especially in the UK, like all, all parts in the world, they, they always are on the fence about raising their kids in the UAE because of it being like a bubble or them not being or or the kids not learning life lessons, you know. Um, surely you don't agree with that because obviously, you know, you, you've raised your kids here and you said also it's probably had a big impact on them. Um do you think it makes kids more well-rounded, just dealing with different nationalities, different people, or, you know, w- 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 you know, I'm sure you have friends as well that say the same thing to you. What do you say to them? Um, I, I think it's within the parents' own hands as to how they raise their children. Yeah. Um, and if you choose to have nannies raise your children, then you get the output of that. If you choose not to do that, um, then I think there are many benefits for, for being here. Um, I wouldn't say kids are necessarily as streetwise as they would be in, in the UK or the US, but in terms of um, them developing as international citizens, I think it's been a great experience for them, um, and I, I fully advocate it. I say my children's friend groups were from all over the world, yeah, very different nationalities, so that's very normal for them, um, which in the world that we live in, where there isn't necessarily that tolerance everywhere. Uh, I think it's a great added benefit for them. So I think it's within your own hands as a parent as to how they're raised here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So you've been an advisor for a really, really long time. Yes. Was was there any moments for you where you thought, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to do something else? And if you did, like, what was it? What what would you decide to do? Interesting question. I didn't actually join to be an advisor. I wanted a qualification. So I joined to get the Chartered Accountancy qualification. And then I think things just evolved after that, as, as they do. Um, if I wasn't an advisor now, what, I would, have want, what would I have wanted to be? Um, I'd probably enjoy being a CEO, if I'm honest. I think the, uh, the skills I've learned and the, the experience I've got would, would fit quite nicely for that. You know, a balance of being able to have a vision, have a view, have a strategy, but also at the same time lead and manage teams um, has been something I've I've always enjoyed in my career. But outside of business, I've um, I've always had an inkling to want to be a detective. <laughs> Seems a strange. You have the look for it. strange things to say, but I like solving problems, and I quite enjoy watching detective programs. And yeah. So if I wasn't in the world of business, it would probably be a, a detective. CIA agent. <laughs> well, CID. <laughs> yeah, that's quite interesting. You definitely have the look for it. 
I, w- I would not. I would not go through investigation. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> So we hope that the podcast has provided enough um, insight from Steve about, you know, how to grow and scale owner-managed and small businesses. If, for of course, um, you're looking for any help, um, get in touch with Steve directly. Um, but I really hope that this was very useful to everybody and see you on our next episode.